Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by The Ringer Podcast Network. If you enjoy our podcast, you may also enjoy The Ringer NBA Show, where every week The Ringer's Chris Vernon hosts an all-star cast of Ringer staffers, NBA players, front office personnel, and more to discuss all things happening in the association. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes by going to iTunes.com slash The Ringer or finding us wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Happy New Year. Hello. Happy New Year. My heart is full of holiday cheer and my belly is full of Wawa, so I'm <laughs> doing pretty good. Sounds like you've done the holidays right. That is good. We're doing a baseball podcast on the day after New Year's, which is not the busiest time of the year for baseball news. So as we speak, I'm looking at the most recent player news, and uh, Jabari Blash hasn't had any issues with his finger while playing in the Dominican Winter League, and the Twins signed Nick Greenwood to a minor league contract, and scouts are buzzing about Jose Arredondo in the Venezuelan Winter no, League. No, they're not. <laughs> I haven't heard from Jose Arredondo in like 10 He's years. He's back. He's back. That's wild. Yeah. None of those things probably meaty enough on its own to do an entire podcast episode about. So we are going to mix things up a little bit. We're going to do something different. And one of my favorite things to do in the offseason is to look back and to do research or read research about the previous season. It's a good time to take stock of things and there aren't games going on every day. So you can do some stuff that isn't necessarily all that time sensitive. And we've both been reading the Hardball Times annual which comes out every winter soon after the season and is packed full of research. And there are five pieces in particular that we really enjoyed. And we're just going to talk to the authors of each of those pieces. So we're just going to bring them in one after the other. It'll be like a vaudeville routine. They'll just talk for 10 minutes and then we'll yank them off the stage with a cane and and bring on the next one. So we're going to talk about catcher framing, defense and stat cast, the positional spectrum, competitive balance, and the typical team's distance from a playoffs spot and injuries. So hopefully you'll learn something and be entertained too, as Michael and I were when we read these articles. All right. So our first guest in our sabermetric clown car is Jeff Solomon, who wrote Pitch Framing Was Doomed from the Start, an essay for the Hardball Times Annual. He, of course, writes primarily for Fangraphs. Hey, Jeff. Hi. There was a time in my life when I wrote about framing literally every week, <laughs> and maybe there was also a time when you came pretty close to that too, but both of us have almost abandoned it as a topic these days, and that's because it's kind of played out. It still matters, but everyone knows about it for one thing, so it's less fun to explain it to everyone as if you are dispensing some piece of unknown wisdom. But it's also because it actually matters a little bit less in a sense, or at least there's less differentiation between teams. So that's what your essay is about. Can you explain the sort of premise for why pitch framing maybe sets teams apart less than it used to and what research you did? Yeah, I, I might not need to. You kind of covered half of it right there. Uh, <laughs> one of, I guess, the most, well, the most interesting thing about pitch framing is that it was a, a measurement of a thing that we didn't really know, really know how to measure before. Uh, people yeah. have been talking about it for decades, and we used to scoff, you know, people like you and me, but older people, equivalents of us, <laughs> but, you know, before they were enlightened. Uh, so it was always a thing, and then we could measure it. And so all of a sudden, it was like a statistic out of nowhere. It was like before, 
if we were like, hey, we we think this guy is a good power hitter, but we have no measurements. We don't know what home runs or doubles or triples are. We don't keep track. We just think this guy hits the ball harder. But all of a sudden, yeah. it's like, oh, now we have extra base hits. Now we have slugging percentage. Now let's do something with this. And so it was exciting. And uh, like you said, you used to write about it every week. I think I used to write about it every week, even though I was envious of what you were doing with it every week. <laughs> and so it was brand new to us, but it was also brand new to teams, uh, which is interesting. You always think of the public uh, circles being behind the the private ones. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I remember an anecdote that come to think of it it probably originated with you wandering around the yankees <laughs> offices when you used to work for yeah. them and uh and uh-huh. you i believe came across them doing some pitch framing research and this would have been like maybe 2007 2009 2009 all right yeah so great so the new york yankees who have more to spend on their operation than nearly any other team maybe every other team i don't really know where the dodgers are now they were still kind of playing around with this in 2008 and 2009 and they were trying to get uh, make heads or tails of it so when you have something that seems like it's a huge deal uh, in that it can matter wins upon wins upon wins and it's new to us and it's new to teams it makes all the sense in the world that teams will try to get it you know the wins Mm -hmm. teams want to do better and so when you have a stat like this that makes a huge difference then not only will teams start to collectively pursue people who are good at this thing, but they will also then try to better instruct the players they have to be better at this thing, because along with the statistical analysis we could do with framing, uh, we also had people like you and before you, Mike Fast, who would document what makes a good receiver a good receiver. So instead Mm -hmm. of like catching instructors being veterans who said, this is how you catch the ball, those people still exist, but now for many organizations, they have a little more guidance. They know what works, what doesn't work. We've seen people like Jason Castro get really good, at least as far as the numbers are concerned, mainly by, I think, changing the way he squats, which is an interesting uh-huh. thing to say out loud. <laughs> and I was talking to uh, David Forrest, so the general manager Ooh, of name the... Drop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's the only general manager you can get in contact with when you write for Fangraphs. <laughs> And uh, I was talking to him about framing when I was doing some research for the article, and he was talking about what they're doing in-house. And of course, like any other team, the A's are are working on developing framing in the minor leagues, but the rewards are still, many of the fruits are still on the tree, if you will, because they're starting at such a low level and catchers take such a long time to develop that this is a, a gradual process, but very long answer short. We're seeing, I think, not so much an improvement at the top in terms of the catchers who are good at framing as we're seeing a raising of the floor across teams, across catchers. Catchers just, you don't see Ryan Domitz in the major leagues anymore. Not not at least a half dozen of them like we had with Domit and Gerald Laird and whatnot. That might have been Domit right there, having been retired. He's just on his motorcycle <laughs> leaving town. <laughs> you don't see terrible framers anymore. Uh, if you do, they're like injury replacements or fourth or fifth stringers. They don't catch very often. And even if a team has a bad framer, maybe they'll pair him with a good framer. And so you just don't have so many of these nightmare teams or nightmare catchers back there behind the plate, which makes it all the more difficult to be great when the floor has gone from bad to average. This strikes me as a really quick evolution. I mean, you just declared pitch framing, if not dead, then the difference between good teams and bad teams is is uh, dropping pretty precipitously and pretty quickly. And, you know, think about 
the Astros hiring Mike Fast, that was only five or six years ago. And, you know, that's got to have something to do with, like you said in the essay, there's not really a downside to pursuing this the, the mm-hmm. way there would be for adjusting the hit for more power. But does this evolution strike you as just really quick that this is now something everybody's got to be good at? It is. It's been quick. Now, granted, there's still a big difference between like a, a Buster Posey and whatever the hell the White Sox were doing last year. And the, so that's that's unusual. But I think the the biggest difference, like the difference between the first and the last place teams in terms of framing runs is like half of what it was just a few years ago. So the narrowing of the gap has been swift in some regard. There's still it's there's still always going to be a gap because there's always going to be catchers who are a little better than other ones, but maybe it's going to end up being kind of like base running where there's like a win difference, maybe two between the extremes instead of what we've seen where we've had like Jose Molina being, I don't know, like 80 runs better than Ryan Domit behind the plate, which is absurd. I even have trouble believing that was right, ever that's true. That's a, a full like Josh Donaldson better just in, yeah, in right. framing. Yeah. Just, and it, like no one would notice except for, I guess, Ben and Ben's entire audience. Um, <laughs> so it is... It's been swift, but it's always going to matter. I, I don't know why this is an example that comes to mind, but if you think of like campaign dollars or something, where maybe if you have two candidates running against one another and they spend, I don't know, like $500 million or whatever is average, then maybe you could say at the end, well, the spending didn't really matter. But if one of them spent $0 and one of them spent $500 million, it would have made a huge difference. So if teams were just like, well, we're not going to go for this, we're not going to care about framing, then that team would be terrible relative to the average certainly now certainly a few years down the road but as long as everyone is there applying a fairly equal amount of pressure and prioritization on this then maybe the uh, the skill is going to die right about as quickly as the interest in writing about it yeah baseball prospectus's stats have dome it in 2008 as negative 63 runs <laughs> which sounds like a typo but it also has him negative 29 the next year in like two thirds of the playing time. He was clearly very bad at this skill. And and if the baseline has risen, then the implication is that if he were to get off his motorcycle in <laughs> Portland and become a catcher again, he would now be significantly worse yeah, relative maybe, to maybe the like typical 100. catcher. <laughs> it's like a run up pitch happens. almost. I can't imagine. It's like if, if the pitcher throws the ball and Domit catches it and then throws it over the fence, then maybe. Like, I don't know what the limit is. Like, how how many borderline pitches does a catcher receive in a season? And then if if all of them were balls, how bad would that be? Well, you know, I, like I came on here. For tomorrow. Yeah, we're, we're not done writing about framing yet. <laughs> and I make a note of that now. <laughs> There's a semi-serious question that sort of stems out of that, which is it's got to be really hard to evaluate catcher framing longitudinally. Because I, you know, I remember Jonathan Lucroy as one of the biggest Jonathan Lucroy plans in or fans in in uh, baseball media. <laughs> you know, his. Framing went from, you know, like plus 20 runs to zero to negative. And is that him getting worse? Is that just the the baseline getting better? How do we separate one from the other? Yeah, there's a few interesting catchers like this. And I like that you you might have been a slip where you described yourself as a Lucroy plant in the media, where I feel like there were were maybe a few of us Lucroy plants on the uh, (laughs) massive Lucroy payroll. So Lucroy was sort of a... Like one of the underrated superstars, one of the the faces of, hey, look, here's a guy who's good at framing and he can hit. So screw you, Jose Molina. And so <laughs> we all loved him. And then if you if you observe his patterns year to year, he's just gradually gotten worse and worse and worse to the point where I think like the last two years he's been basically average at this. And 
the best catchers out there, guys like Posey or or Grandall or I don't know somebody else who's not Luke Roy, they've stayed pretty consistently good. So Luke Roy's case is weird. I think to some extent you can probably blame the fact that he's suffered a concussion. Uh, I would have to imagine that there would be these weird effects that would take place involving the brain and the body where it's easy to imagine a catcher getting worse uh, when his head gets rattled. I don't know what else to make of it, but I think one of the, maybe an even stranger case, maybe a less strange case, I don't know, but uh, we've had Chris Iannetta or before him, there was <laughs> Nick Hundley where you have these bad Chris receivers. Chris is like flowers for Algernon kind of progression. <laughs> he was like <laughs> really bad and then he got really good and then he got really bad again. Yeah. And we don't really know why because it, it made so much sense. You had these guys who were not very good at receiving and then they had really good numbers one year and then you have these backstories where you see something on mlb.com that says Ionetta or hundley prioritizing better receiving or a more likely headline in spring training so it's like okay so they were bad and then they worked on this because there's data and now they're good it all made perfect sense it follows along with the theme of the whole essay i wrote and then they stopped being good for reasons i'm not entirely sure of Ionetta got bad i think when he changed teams hundley got worse when he stayed on the same team so I think it uh, leaves open the possibility that we're still not actually measuring this as accurately as we think, but I think that maybe it's also possible. I think Hundley had a concussion, and I don't know, maybe I I can just throw accusations out there. Maybe he had some micro concussions, you know, the foul tip, just Mm -hmm. takes one. I don't know how to explain those guys, and that might be the most interesting thing to write about with framing at this point overall. It's just, what do you do with this? And I mean, we're still kind of building data we have almost a decade uh, of pitch effect stuff but this kind of newer generation of catchers and certainly newer implementation of the data uh, among the catchers so it's going to be interesting to see where people stabilize but i honestly i don't have a great answer for ionet or hundley or luke roy it's just it's just odd that they've done what they've done when otherwise the skill has remained so consistent all right well you can almost see this process happening in real time like when a new regime took over the twins who had historically been very bad at getting called strikes the first thing they did was sign jason castro or when a new regime took over the diamondbacks the first thing they did was sign jeff mathis who had a really good framing year last year so you can follow this by reading the transactions or you can read jeff's article which has three graphs and two tables one of those tables takes up almost an entire page so i think you should should, uh, look into that option also so and you can also find jeff writing very very often at fangraphs and you can follow him on twitter at based underscore ball to see when he tweets out that article about how bad a framer could possibly be which I'm guessing he will have written by the time this episode. I am doing it right now. I'm going to be on vacation by the time this goes live. So see ya. (laughs) All right. Don't fall off any rocks while you're climbing them. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Okay, so we are joined now by the second of our writers, Rob Arthur, who writes primarily for 538, and his piece in the Hardball Times Annual is called Solving the Defensive Quandary with StatCast Introducing Lars, and he has added yet another acronym to the array of sabermetric acronyms that we had already, which is uh, exactly what we needed. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. So I wanted to start by asking you about this acronym because Sabermetrics has this great tradition of backronyms and uh, sort of reverse engineering an acronym to spell PACOTA, for instance. So how much time when you were coming up with, with Lars did you spend figuring out what you wanted to spell out? 
<laughs> um, I actually, so I should uh, give credit where credit is due. I actually didn't come up with the acronym. Sean O'Rourke, a friend of mine uh, and writer for BP and other places sometimes, came up with the idea of, of that, of launch adjusted, run saved. And I really liked it because essentially you can put a bunch of different things in front of ARS adjusted, run saved. So you can put trajectory adjusted, run saved, and then it becomes TARS. Uh, or you can put <laughs> positioning adjusted, run, run saved, and it becomes PARS. So it's kind of like, I like the idea of introducing it as a family because what I have what I have there uh, right now is very much incomplete. So I, I'm well aware that eventually it's going to get superseded by some uh, better version, hopefully with a slightly different name. And we can cut down on the proliferation of acronyms so that everyone will at least know that it's related to what I originally introduced. It sounds to me like you're excited about creating even more acronyms, but I guess <laughs> yes, that is, that is one way to, to, to portray it. Unfortunately, the only Lars in big league history is Lars Anderson who was plus one defensively lifetime in his very brief career. So there's that. Anyway, we should talk about what this actually does and what improvements it makes. So you built this using the basic framework that today's stats, ultimate zone rating, for instance, rely on a kind of a zone-based defensive metric. And for people who don't know, can you give the, the very elevator pitchy version of how those work and then explain how Lars improves upon them? Yeah, sure. So the basics of a defensive metric, you need to know two things about every batted ball that a fielder gets to or doesn't, as the case may be. Uh, so you need to know how hard it was to field, and you need to know what would have happened if they had not made that play. Uh, so what kind of damage it would normally do? Would it go for a single or a double or, or a triple or whatever? So that's how UZR works, uh, which is probably the most commonly used defensive metric. But UZR relies on to get how difficult a ball is to field, it relies on judgment from stringers who basically mark where on the field the ball went in these zones, that's why it's ultimate zone rating, and how uh, hard the ball was hit and that sort of thing. So where Lars improves on this is it takes StatCast data, which is quantitative and comes from a radar and camera tracking array instead of a stringer sitting in the ballpark. And that data turns out to be more reliable, and it turns out to give you a better idea of how difficult a ball is to field and what would happen to it if the fielder doesn't make the play. So it's a small step forward, but it's significant in that it removes the subjectivity of stringers marking every batted ball and everything that goes along with that. You know, you can have park effects from where stringers sit in the park, and there's a lot of other problems that can crop up when you have mm -hmm. uh, people grading how difficult balls are to field. Mm -hmm. And so the problems, at least publicly, are that A, StatCast doesn't record every batted ball. Some significant percentage of balls are still not tracked, you know, whether it's uh, balls that are hit straight up or straight down or at some unusual angle primarily. And so that kind of makes it so that the, the data set isn't complete. And then also publicly, we don't have the horizontal. Do we have the horizontal angles? We don't. Right. So we don't have the horizontal angles. And even if we did, there are some plays that aren't tracked. And so essentially, you have found out how to fill in those blanks by combining the StatCast data that we do have with the Stringer data so that if a stringer records where the ball lands or is fielded, for instance, then you can combine that with sort of the exit velocity and the vertical trajectory from StatCast, and you can sort of back calculate the trajectory of the ball in a way that we can then use to, to get a more complete data set that is better than the stringers on their own or StatCast on its own. Right. So the idea was to take essentially both sources and come up with a set of uh, information 
information about each batted ball that's better than both of them individually and sort of fills in the gaps of StatCast and yet keeps that quantitativeness uh, that's uh, a decided improvement on what the stringers can do. Mm-hmm. So what do we know about how telling this stat is? Of course, this is all very new, and StatCast doesn't have a big sample, so it's hard to look at it over time and see how consistent it is, which is often how we judge these things. So what do we know about how Lars improves on the public state of the art as it was? Right. So one of the ways that you judge a stat is essentially the reliability, or we call it the reliability, which is basically how consistent is it for a given uh, set of players. Um, so if you split up, uh, for example, a player's season into two halves, you would expect that unless they got injured or something major happened to them over the course of the year, they should show similar defensive abilities over the course of those two halves of the same season. And what I found was that for Lars, it tends to be more reliable half to half than UZR, or about it's about as reliable half to half as UZR is from season to season. So given that a season is a much larger sample size, you expect as you get larger sample sizes, the reliability to increase. So I, I think this shows that probably Lars is a improvement in terms of the reliability. It's it's sort of more quickly zeroing in on each individual player's defensive ability as opposed to just the kinds of bad balls that happen to be hit their way. That's one major improvement. I also think just sort of philosophically it's an improvement to have this stat cast data in place of the stringers and to be able to rely on that quantitative readout from the radar as opposed to just the judgment of, of someone in the stands. And how much of a problem is the data? You know, the stringers are only so reliable. StatCast even has its own uh, weaknesses. But if you got everything, if you were able to measure everything that you wanted to measure, how much work would there still be left to do just in terms of choices you make modeling or, or how you decide to weight certain things? Uh, yeah, it's a lot of work, as I as I discovered. This was kind of an ambitious project, and it wasn't quite complete by the time this I had to finish writing. So yeah, you have to make some pretty serious uh, decisions about how you want to model it and the structure of it. And in this case, uh, as Ben mentioned, about 10% of the batted balls are missed by StatCast. So you have to solve that problem before you go any further, because obviously you can't go forward with having individual fielders missing 10, sometimes 20% of their batted balls. That's That wouldn't make for a good metric. So StatCast is still very much a work in progress. I think that uh, hopefully this will get improved much more as StatCast fills in those gaps on the technical side. But even even once it's complete and we have all the information that we need, it's still a very complicated modeling problem. Defense is just generally more complicated. You have many more players involved. So it's, it's just more difficult. And one of the really interesting things in the article, I thought, was that you found that Lars might not improve on UZR all that much for infielders because infielders get a lot of opportunities and maybe the opportunities aren't that different over the course of a full season. But for an outfielder who doesn't get as many balls to catch and might have those balls be spread over a, a wider area and distribution of velocities and angles and everything, then it really makes a difference because an outfielder can get lucky. Like even over the course of a, a full season, he just might not have as many difficult balls to catch or as many in the border that sort of separates the, the good guys from the not so good guys. Right. The outcome of any ball hit into the outfield is automatically much less certain than a ball that's hit into the infield. And that kind of makes sense if you think about it. I mean, the outfield's just bigger. So there's more different places to hit the ball. And there's more area where fielding the ball is is sort of uncertain. It's going to be dependent on how quick the fielder can run 
as well as things like the wind and the exit velocity of the ball. So knowing how difficult a ball is to field is more important for those outfielders because it's it's so much less certain uh, once the ball gets out there. Without any statistical advance, there's it's going to map onto orthodoxy or else people, to a certain extent, or else people just won't believe it. But there will be a few notable exceptions. And you mentioned that Lars likes uh, Jose Altuve and Nick Barcakis more than UZR does. Did you find anything illustrative or, or did you find a pattern to, to those exceptions? I wouldn't say I found any particular pattern. And I, I would say also I'm probably not the best person to judge it. Because I created the metric, I, of course, want to see that this aligns better with the popular wisdom. I think you could make a case for that. For example, Nick Markakis, he's been kind of rated poorly by defensive metrics almost for his whole career. But fans and sort of the eye test, grizzled old baseball men and so forth, they all say that he's a good fielder. So to see him rising up a little bit uh, was was gratifying. But you're right, like, it's it's really tough to know when a metric is doing well or not, because you, you expect there to be pretty solid agreement with what's already out there. You know, if I was seeing that people that we all knew were terrible fielders rated as the best by this metric, then I would have thrown it away and started it on a different project. So there's kind of like a, it has to be mostly in agreement. And, and the places where it didn't agree, I, I couldn't. I couldn't see any general any general feeling about what made them different. Yeah, and, and at the top of the leaderboard, you've got Mookie Betts, Adrian Beltre, Billy Hamilton. At the bottom, you've got Yasmani Tomas, and those seem like the right names. And yeah. someone might someone might say, "Well, what do we need this new fancy system for? We already knew those guys were good." But at least in theory, one of the advantages should be that we can tell which guys are good in a much smaller sample. So if someone doesn't already come into the season with a million gold gloves and a reputation as one of the best fielders ever like Adrian Beltre, then we can figure out if he's the next Adrian Beltre more quickly than we could have otherwise. And and as you were saying, when we get better data, you can use this same framework and just plug in the better data. So if we get a higher percentage of batted balls tracked, great. You can still sort of keep the stat and just use those. Or if we figure out positioning and, and we know where fielders started each play, so we know how far they ran, then you can incorporate that. So this is sort of a, a framework and it's the best we can do with the data available, but it's better than we could do before and it can be adapted to something even better in the future. Yeah, that was my idea was to come up with a, a way to a, sort of a blueprint for how defensive metrics could be improved, knowing full well that pretty much by the time I finished writing it, there was already going to be a better set of defensive data out there. Uh All right. Well, you can find Rob writing at 538, and you can find him on Twitter as he creates even more acronyms at no underscore little underscore plans. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to take a very quick break, and we'll be right back with the rest of our guests. I'd like to take a quick moment to tell you about another podcast that I know pretty well. It's called Achievement Oriented, and it's Channel 33's gaming podcast. Every week, the ringers Jason Concepcion and I discuss the latest news in video games. We also interview some of the most interesting people in the gaming industry. You can subscribe to Achievement Oriented and hear Jason and more of me on the ringers Channel 33 podcast feed on iTunes by going to iTunes.com slash The Ringer or finding us wherever you get podcasts. All right, so our next guest is Corinne Landry. She writes for Fangraphs and also for MLB.com's Cut Foresight. We are talking to her about her essay in the Hardball Times Annual called The Rise of Positional Offensive Parity. Hey, Corinne. Hey, thanks for having me on. 
We are happy to. So this topic fascinates me. Before we get into why 2016 was weird and an outlier and and why that might be, for people who might not know, could you just sort of describe what the positional spectrum usually looks like or or why different positions have different offensive baselines and what tend to be the good ones and what tend to be the bad ones? Sure. It's a thing that kind of makes sense if you think about it, if you give it much thought, that Harder defensive positions typically have a lower offensive bar to clear. So like your shortstop is probably one of your hardest defensive positions. So since there are fewer people that can play that, uh, their offense production tends to be lower than, say, first base or DH, uh, Mm -hmm. where the defensive bar isn't as high. So the offensive bar will be higher. So your spectrum is kind of your up the middle positions, your catcher, shortstop, second base, center field are your lesser offensive performers compared to your corner positions, first, third, left, and right field. Mm -hmm. And so you went back to the DH era's beginning, basically, and you looked at how all these positions have stacked up against each other offensively every year, and you noticed that 2016 was really, really strange. So can you describe what made it so strange? Right. So this past year, um, shortstops, second baseman, and third baseman were really, really good, better than they have been. They set um, kind of the the historical bests uh, for offensive production at those positions uh, since the DH era began in 73, whereas left field, right field, first baseman, their offensive production was really kind of uh, balanced the other way. It had kind of fallen a bit, which I found really interesting. In addition to the power surge across the league, that there was just kind of these things that we've taken for granted about what offensive looks like league-wide that just seem to be a little bit uh, out of balance this year. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of dug in a little bit on what was going on there. And I, I'm not sure that I came up with a, a definitive answer, but uh, it's definitely worth kind of digging in on what's going on. I actually think you, you did get pretty close to the truth, which is it has to do with this generation of players. And you pointed back to uh some Dave Cameron wrote and some Rob Arthur wrote about how the league is sort of skewing younger. Which, so not only are you getting these top hitters like Carlos Correa and Corey Seager and Chris Bryant um, playing particular positions that are having offensive booms, but you're getting them at an age like those guys aren't going to be playing shortstop or Bryant's not going to be playing third base into his late 30s. Correa and Seager aren't going to be shortstops forever. So we're getting them at this sort of offensive peak while they're uh, still athletic enough to to play these these traditionally defensive positions. So I guess my question to you is, generally, what do you make of that? And is this the way things are going to be going forward? Yeah, I think so. We're in an era where the young talent is putting out more and more of the overall production in league-wide offense. So it makes sense that if your elite players are playing these still difficult defensive positions, uh, that'll kind of screw screw up the balance. The question, I guess, is the youth trend going to continue? Is the league talent pool going to continue kind of skewing to the young talent producing more of the the offense. Um, and I don't think so. You know, I think that there will be a balance that is reached again that's more uh, in line with what we've seen in recent years. But I think that there is is something to it. If you look particularly at shortstop, since 73, the shortstop has, position has just been on this pretty steady rise in terms of offensive production. Um, so that's not just a one-year 
aberration. It's been happening for decades now. Uh, so I think overall, there's something to the idea that athletes are just getting better, you know, and as that uh, continues, it's going to maybe lessen our idea of what the difference in production is going to look like from a shortstop and a first baseman. And with this crop of you know, shortstops, third baseman. I, I know there was a, a graph in there that you showed left field offensive production over uh, like 87 to 2007 and then had a separate line in there for what if you take out Barry Bonds. So Barry Bonds moved the, the mean production that much. You know, how much can, you know, maybe not Barry Bonds, but like Chris Bryant, how much can Chris Bryant move the mean production for, for third baseman? I think you only see the big move in a true extreme, like a Barry Bonds. I don't think we're likely to see that again, certainly with any regularity anytime soon. So I, I think it's minimal. I think it's more the the quantity of high quality players than any one elite player at a position really making that difference. Um, and I, I guess it'll be interesting to see as these players age and move to different positions, you know, how that will, will affect the balance later. If if Chris Bryant ends up at first base someday, you know, maybe the first base production overall will uh, start to to look more like what we've seen in the past. And you theorized also, you know, as you said, some of these are long-term trends with shortstops getting better or corner outfielders getting worse offensively over decades. But you mentioned the possibility that this might also have had something to do with the huge up tick in home run rate over the last season and a half or so. So can you talk about how that might have been connected? Sure. I, I think that the home run rate uptick is still a giant mystery. The thing that I find perhaps most fascinating about it is that it's not that there's been a rise of you know 50 plus home run seasons. In fact, I, I, I may be mistaken, but I don't think anyone hit 50 home runs last year. The way it's manifesting itself, what we're seeing in this home run uptick is just more and more and more 20 home run seasons, including players like Freddie Galvis, who had been thought of as kind of a <laughs> defensive only shortstop, seemingly out of nowhere hit 20 home runs this year. So I, I don't know what that means. I think it means something that it's this, this league-wide from top to bottom offensive producers hitting more home runs, more so than just the elite home run hitters putting up massive seasons. Mm -hmm. Do you have, even without any evidence, do you have like a, a favorite theory? Like, are they juicing the balls? Are they teaching a, a different swing path or, you know, or is it something else? I really don't, because I feel like if it was as simple as juicing the balls, we'd see some, you know, 50, 60 home run seasons. So I, I, I don't have a theory. Yeah, I think one of our other guests, Jeff Sullivan, did some research that showed that if you did have balls that were juiced, whether intentionally or accidentally, you would expect guys with less power to benefit disproportionately just because your Adam Dunn types or your Giancarlo Stanton types, they might hit the ball, you know, 450 feet instead of 440 feet or whatever. But a lot of those balls would be home runs anyway, whereas with shortstops or second basemen, the, the positions you pointed to or third baseman that might not have huge power generally, if you kind of bring up the baseline for everyone, then those guys might have more of their fly balls going over the fence than other more more prototypical power hitters. So that would, I guess, support the idea that it could be the ball and also support the numbers that you're seeing, although that is still speculation, I'm, of course. I'm rooting for the balls to be juiced just because <laughs> I'm rooting for, like, wasn't in Japan they, they had a scandal about this recently? Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, that would just be so much fun to write about. So that's what I'm rooting for. <laughs> yeah, I've written about that a couple times, and I, I kind of think that's what it is, but it's hard to prove. Anyway, if you had to guess, you know, next year or over the next five or ten years, I mean, would the sort of positional spectrum look more or less like it always has? Or, you know, do you think this is to some extent a, a brief little blip and we'll look back at this and say, that was weird, but that's no longer the way things are? I think my my guess is that some normalcy will return, um, if only because it makes too much sense, you know, why it is the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the overarching trends do show that there is a tightening that I do expect to continue going forward. I don't think we're going to return to the days of, uh, you know, shortstops producing league offense 20% below uh, league average. I think that uh, there is a tightening overall, but yeah, it just it makes makes too much sense that, you know, first basemen are going to be your your big time hitters uh, going forward. All right. Well, you can follow Corinne on Twitter at Corinne Landry. That's C-O-R-I-N-N-E. And you should be reading her regularly at Fangraphs and Cut 4. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk with you guys. Okay, so our next guest is Gerald Schiffman, and he is the lead researcher at Crane's New York Business, although more relevant to our topic today. He is also a writer for Fangraphs and the Hardball Times, and his piece in the Hardball Times annual is called How Much Hope and Faith is in Major League Baseball. Hey, Gerald. Hey, Ben. So you sort of inadvertently, I don't know whether you set out to do this or not, but you kind of made the Hall of Fame case for Bud Selig, who no longer needs one in that he has been inducted. But can you kind of take us back to 2000 or, or give us the roots of why you wanted to look into this and where baseball stood competitively 15 years ago or so? So in 2000, there was a really big problem in baseball, which was that the small market teams were just no longer competitive. It was really the the large market teams were just kind of dominating everyone else, uh, making the playoffs more than the small market teams. George Will wrote the paper um, that Selah commissioned that basically showed that the competitive problems in baseball were chronic, getting worse, and Selig needed to inspire what he called hope and faith, which was establishing a competitive state in baseball where fans could go into the season and really think their team had at least a shot and not be just devoid of any semblance that their team could could be good going into the year. What Selig did was, and what was so crucial, you know, he, he expanded the playoff format and that really, really made baseball much more competitive. And so the uh, effect of this that, that you wrote about and you studied was that essentially it reduced the amount of games that each that an average team would spend out of first place and you know make it at least seem like they were closer to the to the playoff race and you know I think you came up with a really interesting sort of elegantly simple way to to chronicle this so you know how did how did the uh, the process come together for you? Yes, you are the second of our guests to invent a new stat and a new acronym. Although I can't blame you because this is a this is a cool one. Go ahead. So the stat I called it uh, the Hope and Faith Index, which was a play off that uh, Selig trope, and um, it's really simply created. It's just the average smallest deficit of a team out of the a team's distance from the uh, a playoff spot. So you know pre nineteen ninety five. That was just uh, their games back in the division. Since then, it's either games back in the division or wild card. And you average those together and, you know, you get an idea of the competitive state in the game really at any point in time you want to look at. 
And you managed to do this not only at the end of the season, as you said, that that question had sort of been studied, but you managed to get this after every game that that every team played. So how big a data collection issue is that? Because that's something like 200,000 data points. Well, you know, the data is obviously out there with RetroSheet. It's just a question of lining it up, right? So what I decided to do was, you know, I looked at the deficit after a certain number of games played, like... 56 games played, for instance, not the deficit as of particular dates because dates are inconsistent from season to season just in terms of, you know, where you are because teams have different numbers of games played. They start the year at different points. So, you know, it came down to lining everything up and tallying up the deficits from there. So, you know, it took some, I guess, coding gymnastics, you want to call it, but uh, conceptually, it's not too difficult. I don't know if you have the numbers in front of you, but can you give us a sense of the magnitude of the change in the Hope and Faith Index or the the decrease in the typical number of games back that uh, the average team is? So basically, you know, you have like three errors that I looked at. You have the error with two divisions, the error when where there was three divisions and a wild card, and the current one where you have three divisions and two wild cards in each league. And in the first, in the, the two division era, the first one, the deficit was 7.91, I believe, the average deficit all through the year. The second era you had it is 5.79, and the third era it was 4.58. So basically, from the two division era to the contemporary one, you've got a 42.1% improvement, all told, which is a pretty serious difference just in terms of how tightly packed the teams are in the race. And this is an interesting question uh, to me because, you know, you've got a, it's a, a quantitative answer to just by the name, hope and faith is sort of a qualitative question. So like how, and obviously there are going to be hard cases. Like, you know, I just went back and looked and in 2012 and 13, the Cubs were 30 games out of first place, but like they were on their, you could tell that they were on their way to re, to building the team that won the World Series this year. And even letting go of hard cases like that, you know, it's a, how hopeful you feel about your team is often a, I don't know, it's a, it's a more complicated question than they're five games out of a playoff spot or they're 10 games out of a playoff spot. So I guess I've got a two-part question. One is how far back can your team be in the standings before you really start to feel like they're not in it anymore? And did this evolution sort of track with your own experiences? So, you know, you're definitely right in that, you know, it's not a perfect index of hope and faith in general. Uh, Obviously, there was a difference between the uh, rebuilding Cubs and the rebuilding Phillies, just in terms of, uh, well, the Phillies of uh, Morrow's tenure, just in terms of how their fans are feeling about the future. But this still kind of captures how hopeful they are about the current year, you know, how much of a shot they have about the current year. So in that way, it's effective. And so uh, as for the other part of your question, you know, how deep, how long in the season can they kind of um, sustain that hope? What the numbers showed was that the biggest gains in the hope and faith index from era to era are in the early part of the season. So every time another playoff spot was added, the gains early in the season into the summer were bigger than they were later in the season. So for the bulk of the year, fans could enjoy at least somewhat more of a competitive games to watch. 
Yeah, and it's a really significant difference. Like you looked at the trade deadline since people make the argument that, well, maybe we should push the trade deadline back because the season is more uncertain now, the outcome is more uncertain, and so we should wait longer until things are more settled to have that deadline and have teams decide whether they're buyers or sellers. But you looked and you essentially found that there is no point at which we could put a trade deadline today when things would be as settled as they were at the trade deadline, you know, decades ago before these changes to the playoff format. Right, exactly. So the deadline was created in for the 1986 season. And, you know, the deadline is July 31st, so roughly the two-thirds point of the year, you know, about game 108 or so. And if you look at game 108, in 1985, the HFI on that day was 11.35. So, you know, teams are a little more than 11 games out. And now if you look at the most recent year, which for me was 2015, they never get close to an average 11 game deficit. And really, by that standard, there's no deadline that makes any sense, at least competitively. Mm-hmm. So mission accomplished then, <laughs> pretty much, right? I mean, you can criticize so. Bud Selig for, for other things, but as far as making this one thing that he set out to do reality, it uh, seems to have worked very well. So if you think that that's grounds enough for him to be in the Hall of Fame despite his other failings, well, if this was his primary goal, it's hard to imagine that he could have accomplished it more, more convincingly. Right. And, you know, the thing I would say is that, you know, these were, they weren't, uh, he wasn't reinventing the wheel with these changes, like wild cards had existed in all the other sports, and it wasn't something super innovative, but he still had to convince the owners, which were so traditional and didn't change, to do this. So, I mean, I think that's an accomplishment in and of itself. You know, the as for whether he should be in the Hall of Fame, that gets that's much beyond the scope of this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. All right, Um, fine. (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess one other critique you could possibly make, and, you know, I guess you could make the Hope and Faith Index account for whether there's less hope and faith for a wild card spot than there would be for a, a division title. But, I, you know, that's especially in the two wild card era where winning a wild card just gets you into essentially a, a 50-50 play-in game. Maybe that doesn't have the same effect on your hope that a division title would. Or, you know, you could make a case that it shouldn't, at least, in that it doesn't do the same thing for your World Series odds, which is the ultimate goal. Well, I mean, there is, you know, you would say there's a difference just because obviously to win a wild card, if you're five games out, you have so many more teams to hop over. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe those aren't rivals division rivals that really engage fans this just like division opponents would be and maybe there's something more rewarding about winning the division but the fact that they're still in the race deep into the year you know i think that makes a pretty big difference just in terms of you know how close of attention i'm going to pay to the team if i'm just a casual fan mm-hmm. and as a fan of the the league in general is there like an optimal parity because you know just sort of a crude egalitarian every team has an equal shot at making the playoffs just sort of doesn't feel fulfilling from a narrative perspective so you know are you i guess satisfied with the amount of hope that's available league-wide right now i think it's it's good for the most people which i think is a good thing Mm -hmm. i don't really know if there's an optimal level but i think baseball is better when more people are engaged 
you know, with the teams. Obviously, that's good for the teams because they make more money. But the more teams that are somewhat competitive, the more interesting the game is for more people. And I, I think it's better off that way than when we come down the stretch of the year and all the, the races are settled and we're just kind of waiting for the playoffs. I'd say this is kind of a better setup. All right. Well, you can follow Gerald on Twitter at G Schiffman and keep track of his writing at Fangraphs and the Hardball Times. Gerald, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So we have come to the end of our cavalcade of analysts. And our last guest, though certainly not the least, is Jeff Zimmerman, who, like most of our earlier guests, is a writer for Fangraphs and the Hardball Times, among other places. And we're going to talk to him about his essay in the Hardball Times Annual, but also an article he wrote about injury information and the disabled list on the Hardball Times website. Jeff, hello. Hello. So I guess let's just briefly go over your THT annual essay, which was sort of fact-checking a claim that Scott Boris made as reported in Jeff Passan's book, The Arm. And so if you can just sort of summarize, the the claim Boris made was about the perhaps uh, deleterious effects of young pitchers having a lot of innings on their arm. And you looked into the historical record and you tried to find precedents and you found that Boris was perhaps slightly skewing the stats for some reason. So can you sort of summarize what Boris said and what you found? Yeah. So for what the study, the, the main thing that Boris came out and found that was pitchers that threw quite a few innings before they got to the age of 25 didn't throw a bunch of innings after they turned 30. That was his big uh-huh. claim. So he was wanting pitch, you know, he's kind of looking at pitchers as like, oh, I'm limiting their innings. But I mean, with the study, he only looked at major league innings. One of the main things also was like, if you just look at it, even pitchers that started later that might not have been thrown when they were a bunch of innings, major league innings by the time they turned 25 and joined later, they still didn't throw later. I mean, it wasn't like it really increased their arms by decreasing their workload. What I kind of found is the ones that threw a lot of innings just continued to throw a lot of innings because they were good pitchers and that's what they do. So it kind of seemed like it was a bunch of bold claims, but what I found with a lot of his studies is he kind of gets the bold claim, but he has nothing really to compare it to. And do you think he had some ulterior motive in this case? Like, you know, was there something that he was he was looking out for his client in a way that maybe wasn't all that statistically sound, but made sense from a super agent's perspective? I, yeah, when I looked through it all, I think the main thing he was looking at, cause like the teams would have the same information, was almost... I'm not, I don't know if it's true, but he was, almost seemed like he was convincing his client that this was a good deal. Like, these pitchers don't throw long, and if you want to throw long, you don't throw less. And I think he was just trying to get Strasburg to his big payday, which actually did he was able to get this year. And kind of looking at some of the information, I found it was probably a good deal for Strasburg. He's already had the Tommy John surgery. Pitchers kind of get them after time, and he may not, be able to, he may not have been able to get his big free agent payday, so he kind of got one, got his payday early. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, the the problem of making up a convincing argument about pitcher injuries, and you wrote about this, and Jeff Passan wrote about this in the arm, is this is at least partially a data collection issue. Because even if you can sort by innings and get, you know, compile everybody's innings pitch back to college, that doesn't include pitch counts, how stressful the pitches are, how many days of rest those those pitchers have had, and how all those factors interact. So, you know, is it even possible to really come up with sort of large-end data about pitcher injuries in a way that would be more convincing than what you need to convince Steven Strasburg? It would almost be impossible. I mean, I'm trying to deal with the injuries the way it is, and it's just trying to get 
just disabled list information is tough. And then, I mean, you know, we didn't even have minor league disabled list information to see if, you know, pitchers were hurt even in the minors. I mean, that's not even known, not even like going to college or trying to get that information. So it's close to impossible. It's, like I said, I think that's a lot of, you know, show and, he did the same thing going back with Max Scherzer a while back when him and Lester, I think James Shields were all free agents, and he was trying to make Scherzer look like, you know, he's thrown less innings and he's thrown all this stuff, but he it ended up he just threw just as many pitches. He was just still in the minor leagues at the time. He'll get the, the big awe factor going on with something, but once you kind of start digging into it, a lot of times there's really not that much information behind it. Yeah. And of course, Boris is sort of notorious for doing an end around the baseball operations department and appealing directly to ownership. And maybe you can convince an owner with an argument that has some flashy claims that a baseball ops person would see through, but he's able to bypass that department entirely at times, much to his benefit and to his client's benefit. So I wanted to transition to talking about your article for the Hardball Times website, which was sort of a summary of 2016 injury information and and a bit about also the future of injury analysis because you've been one of the foremost injury researchers in the public realm. And as you just mentioned, that can be a, a very difficult and time-consuming and thankless task because of the shape the data is in if the data exists at all. So first, can you tell us what we know about injuries in 2016? Because it was a pretty remarkable year. Yeah, we we broke all kinds of overall records, but it was all fueled by pitcher injuries. The hitters have been relatively constant almost from the beginning. I actually think there's some progress being made on that front. Like, but just with the right stretching, like people have kind of noticed it, and they may be even and but I actually think that there's some progress being done because people just kind of use it more for maintaining their um, rosters. But when it comes to pitchers, they just blew it away. We had the top three or four years ever this last year. I think it was three. The Dodgers, it was crazy what they did. But then, then three other teams were just right behind them. I mean, it was like, well, if they hadn't broken the record, other teams would have. So it was pretty remarkable what, what all happened this last year. And the deal is with the number of trips with the um, – New DL stint going down to 10 days. I even think we're going to blow the number of DL stints out of the water. It'll be interesting to see how many what days happen. If it's still going to be the same number of days, you know, just a short amount of time, or what kind of happens with that one, if they're just going to skip a start. It'll kind of, I almost hate to say some of the data, I'm just going to have to throw it out just because we're going to be dealing with a different kind of a limit of time that players will miss. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I mean, we were talking to Gerald Schiffman about measuring games back and the difference between you know measuring games out of the division with and without the wild card. This just seems like it's going to be a categorical difference. It's going to make it difficult to compare DL time from year to year. Yeah, and the one thing I'm, I'll have to kind of compare is that there was somewhere around 10%, I think it was what it was, or even less than that where the deal stint was just 15 days, that there was always, you know, players seemed to be longer than that. It wasn't just the bare minimum. We'll have to see what number kind of comes up above that. And I kind of wonder if in the future we're going to, just to do the comparison I was thinking about is I'll just do compare days over 15 and kind of see how they compare so we'll be able to compare errors a little bit. But anything under the 15 days, we're just going to have 15 days or less. We're just throw out from all the time frames just 
to kind of put everything on an even keel for a few years until we get some baseline numbers. And of course, baseball is the most data-rich sport, and we have this incredible wealth of information about every play, every pitch, every batted ball. But injury information has really lagged behind, partially because of privacy concerns and partially just because people weren't keeping this information or weren't looking into it. So where does injury information stand, at least in the public arena? And what more do we need, essentially, to progress? Because you kind of made the case in this article that you've almost reached the end of your rope as far as what you can do with the information that's currently available. Yeah, with the current information it's where i get most of mine and i just where it's where i get it all for the disabled list is just the mlb transactions on mlb.com they list them all and i go through there and even this last year they missed some information so it's like there would be some guy that had gone to dl and then there'd be no record of him coming back and then he just started playing so that was that's really tough but then so we have this. I'm able to collect it from every year. But then there's still the players that miss a few days. And it's like, oh, he was hurt because of time. Well, no one's really keeping track of that in a database form so anyone can use. And then there's nothing in the minors to know if a guy was constantly hurt beforehand. I mean, there's, a, we have, there's the one Tommy John surgery database that's out there. At least we'd have that information. But it's really tough to kind of figure out what's going on. And then the other thing with the major league database, it's all they'll usually have is like – a location and the injury and maybe a severity. It's like mm-hmm. they sprained, and then we have a side, like they sprained their right ankle. Well, sometimes the extent of that sprain is different. And when the first information comes out, usually it's like, oh, it's a grade two sprain, which can be worse or comparably so we could get other players. But whenever you go back and look at it, you don't know what the extent is. It's just really tough to kind of get the detailed information on everyone to um, kind of look back and even kind of get comparable information. You kind of, I know a lot of times people will give me a list of like who did had this happen to them, like broke their wrist, and you give it to them, and sometimes it depends which bone it is, and then they have to just go back and look through each of those people to see which ones actually broke that individual bone in their wrist. Yeah, well, we are glad that you're out there doing what you can with the information that is at your disposal, and everyone can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff W. Zimmerman and follow his writing at Fangrass and the Hardball Times, among other outlets. Jeff, thank you very much for bringing up the rear. All right, thanks for having me on. Okay, so school is out. That is the end of our Sabermetric review. We'll be back next week. Perhaps there will be some transactions to talk about, but hope you all enjoyed it, and we will talk to you soon. Mm